Thanks for listening to Marketing B2B Tech, the podcast from Napier where you can find out what really works in B2B marketing today. Welcome to Marketing B2B Technology, the podcast from Napier. Today I'm joined by Hannah Ingram. Hannah's the marketing manager for a company called Ignus. Now, Ignus are a hardware and software design company. So they build electronic systems for customers, which I think is really interesting, obviously being an engineer. Um, welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on, Mike. I appreciate it. So calling you a, a design consultancy in uh, you know the electronic sector, you, you could do an awful lot of different things. So do you want to tell us a little bit about you know what Ignis does, the kind of projects you get involved in, and maybe a little bit about what your role is in those projects? Yes, absolutely. So um, we get stuck into lots of projects, as you can imagine. Uh, we work with everyone from sort of innovative startups all the way through to household names. You know, there's big TV ads out at the moment of people that we help. Uh, Sector-wise, it's very varied as well. So anything from IOTs to smart hubs, anything you can really think of that involves electronics. Really, we have sort of four pillars in terms of services we offer. So electronics design, you're talking everything from simple board work on PCB through to sort of FPGA development, that kind of thing. Um, Software-wise, it's mostly on the embedded side of helping people with that. So, for example, we've done a case study recently on music, so streaming systems, etc., and sort of getting the software right behind that. There's an awful lot that goes on in terms of technical debt around sort of writing code fast and sort of the problems that can occur there. So we kind of help people unravel that. Then we've got the test side. So we've got a great partnership with MG Products around test jigs. We've also got two environmental test chambers on site. And then of course, just product development. So everything through from doing a workshop through all the way to sort of scaling up your project so that when you're doing volume manufacture, it's going to work well. So there's a lot of educational pieces around prototyping and the fact that if you get the first prototype, it's very exciting. It doesn't mean you should put that straight into production. In terms of my job title here, so I'm marketing manager. I'm lucky that I've got a team around me. So I've hired a marketing executive back in January. I'm very lucky, he's sort of a content and SEO wizard. We get stuck into everything really. So there's a lot of experimentation going on here because it was a startup when I joined, you pretty much have to do a bit of everything. So I call myself a bit of a 360 marketer from that point of view. So you have to be very comfortable to get stuck in. So for example, I'd never done a pay-per-click properly when I joined and then you sort of have to get stuck into that. So there's a lot of learning going on. You have to be very comfortable with being constantly pushed out of your comfort zone in this kind of role. Perfect. And I think that leads us on really well to um, how you ended up and how, you, how your careers developed. And, you know, I'm particularly interested to know why you chose to give up your potential career as a film star to become a B2B marketer. <laughs> Yeah, so we should probably interject here around uh, me being a Bollywood extra once. I was looking for summer jobs. I wanted to try out something different. So I ended up on a, a day a bit like this. I think we were all uh, suffering in the heat wave. It was actually a day like this in Nottingham. And we all sort of sat around cheering for the Bollywood star who was starring in this cricket movie called Patelia House, which I'm probably pronouncing completely wrong. I was bowled over because <laughs> I'd actually worked in the cinema. It was a brilliant summer job. I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to do summer work. But I, I got very bowled over by the guy who was playing the father because he was in every Bollywood movie at the time. So that was very exciting for me. Anyway, I interject. So my kind of career has developed in a slightly different way to other people. So I actually did a degree in meteorology, which is weather. It's very sort of maths and physics heavy, which doesn't sort of you go, hang on, how does that relate to marketing? I suppose to me, there was always a conflict between my love of maths 
and my love of sort of psychology and people and creativity. And I could never quite find my jam with that. So I went down the maths route. I realized quite quickly that trying to get into the Met Office is a bit like become, trying to be a rock star when you're in a band. You know, it's, it's very competitive and I wanted to stay up north. So I looked around, had a think about it and tried out a marketing role. And luckily I found someone prepared to take a bit of a gamble on me. A great company called Sumed up in Glossop that do medical cushions and mattresses. And I kind of fell in love with the B2B world there, really. I trained on the job, so I did a CIM qualification over in Manchester. I found actually learning on the job, I learned so much through that, really, that sort of baptism of fire around marketing. I find the landscape has really changed. So when I first started, social media was in its infancy, but the main thing was nothing got measured. So there was a little bit of sort of e-marketing but there was none of the tools we have now. You know, how do you know where you're ranking on, you know, Google? You pretty much typed it into the internet and saw where you were. Now you've got SEMrush that sort of tells you and you don't have to have an argument about their computer showing up a different one to you. And um, so it's actually come full circle for me because I've now got the math side as well through the data and also through the very, very technical roles that I choose um, that sort of you know, I, the people that I work with do the hard stuff and I get to learn and absorb that through what they do, which is amazing. That uh, sounds cool. And it sounds like it was almost accidental. I, I guess it, it's kind of um, almost a marketing approach to testing different careers and seeing which one you like. That's right. I'd, I sort of highly recommend say to people, look, when you go and do a career and you choose your degree, the most important thing is to choose something that you find really passionate and interesting because you're going to be doing three years of it every single day and you need to know that's something you want to do. There is an element, I think, looking back, I sometimes go, well, would I have chosen a career was a bit more of the right route for what I wanted to do. But trying to decide what you want to do when you're 17 is really, really tough. And I think without doing that and doing a degree or going into a, a first job, it's very hard to know what you like and what you don't. And I think with marketing, it's very much a love-hate experience. Sometimes the job is fantastic. You go, I love it. There are days when you go, people don't understand the marketing side and you get very disillusioned. So you have to be, you have to be comfortable, I think, in marketing, in knowing that your day is not going to be set out for you. So a lot of other roles, things will land on your desk and you do them. It's not like that in marketing. You have to have the ideas. You have to come up with those ideas. People will be constantly asking you, what do you think? And you have to be okay with that. And I think that's really interesting. If you're running basically the whole of marketing with a massive team of one um, <laughs> for a company that's trying to reach, you know, a whole range of different customers from startups through to global electronics companies. I, I mean, how do you decide on priorities in that situation? I think the most important thing is sitting down and deciding who your ideal customers are but also how much you can help people. So for example, a lot of our startups, if they don't have funding, there's only so much we can help them. So for example, they might come to us and say they've got a budget of 10K and we go, well, actually that might only give you a few days engineering. Um, we don't want to eat anyone's budget. We're always very open and honest with people to go, look, you may need to go away and get some extra help first. So we have a think about, are we right for people? For us, it's just as important to be right for them as it is that they're right for us. And we have quite a rigorous sort of pre-qualification process. In terms of managing the marketing that we do, we actually have come to a conclusion that Excel is quite useful. So within my team, I sort of have a list of priorities that we need to achieve high to low, sort of what percentage we've done. And it just kind of lays out, you look at it during the week and you plan it out at the beginning of the week. Then we have what I call a wins and rants session at the end of the week of what's gone well and what hasn't and sort of looking at all those KPIs. Again, 
one of the lessons I've learned over time is waiting until the end of the month to check if your traffic's okay on the website isn't always a great idea. It's better to do it on a weekly basis if you can do that. And also when you're prioritizing, go, what's the effect of what I do? What effect is it going to have? So for example, spending half an hour on Search Console doing the technical SEO on a page could actually be far more effective than spending 10 hours researching and reading every word of everything that's going on in the industry. So I think you have to pick your battles um, and go, what is the right thing here? Again, I love doing interviews, so I absolutely love interviewing our team, guest speakers and things. But sometimes you have to say, well, just because there's new member staff who's really interesting, maybe their, you know, their niche isn't particularly going to help a lot of people. However, I've also found ones where very few people read the blog, but the people who do are the people who come and talk to us about projects. So another thing I would say for people going into the industry is don't be disheartened if your blog doesn't get thousands of hits because the one that's got 50 people looking at it in lifetime total, that might be the one converting. So you, you need to measure that, not just how many clicks, how many impressions, how many likes you're getting on social media. I think that's really insightful. I mean, if you look at Ignis or any other B2B company, typically there's a, a, a relatively small number of sales. I mean, I guess, you know, your company is probably selling very little. It's not like you're selling thousands of projects a month. It's probably a handful at most. And a lot of marketing tools seem to be focused on increasing the numbers up, making the, the big numbers bigger is always good. And actually, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's the same with us at Napier. We could at most take on two clients a month. And, and it kind of doesn't matter whether we have 5,000 or 10,000 visitors to our website, because actually there's only two we care about, which are the two that become customers. So I love that insight. That's great. Thank you. One of the things I'm interested in is, is the audience you reach. So, I, you know, you're selling the, this um, capability to design and develop products. Are you targeting an engineering audience or are you targeting a non-technical audience? How, how do you go about deciding who to reach when it could be a, you know, a real mix of different people influencing the decision? That's that's absolutely right. So we've got a list of sort of buyer personas. And again, we looked at them and they all very, very different people. For the most part, it is sort of head engineering, engineering managers. We find with these people, um, they're a lot more receptive to understanding the process, understanding the costs involved. We've written a blog around sort of cost versus uh, investment, I guess, because a lot of people see it as an upfront cost and it is a lot of money to develop a project. When I first found out how much product development cost, I vowed never to make a product myself. <laughs> However, it's it's incredibly rewarding, <laughs> but there's a lot that goes in. You know, you need to test things correctly. You need to do feasibility studies to make sure that there's more than sort of three people in the universe that are going to buy your product and, and, you know, that you don't sell it for too high a cost as well. You know, if, if it's going to cost you £50 to make and people are only prepared to, to buy it for £40, that's not going to work. So, yeah, in terms of the audience, I think there is a bit of a split and that's why we kind of nurture a lot of our blogs are kind of dual readership. So we split it out between the people who are just really getting into it. And so, you know, what is test, for example, what's designed for test and the people who know the really nitty gritty stuff of, well, how is this going to help you? So we try and we try and tailor it to everybody the same way we will have blogs that kind of blot out sort of, you know, sick and gan, really kind of really techy stuff that's just for that audience and then other things that are very much sort of 10 ways product development can go wrong um, we actually find seasonal blogs are really popular as well so valentine's you know take all your services write a valentine's blog around it <laughs> that's a sort of thing people really do buy into that kind of thing they want a bit of light relief there i suppose so it's interesting i mean you're, you're talking about targeting senior engineers who are not always renowned for their sense of fun and actually <laughs> 
what you're saying is having a bit of fun is, is a really good way to engage them. I think so. I think that's the thing. Again, there's so many different personalities within that. Might so you can you can put people in a box, um, but you know there are some people who really like to look at that, and there's other people who will like to sit and sort of consume sort of eight pages on something really technical. Um, and if, again, I think that catering to both sides of it, because people can choose what to read on your blog. And the great thing about sort of keyword optimization is you can target different people so that they're going straight to that particular blog. The same with LinkedIn, you know, there's heads of engineering that won't put their profile picture up and they don't really use LinkedIn. There's other people who sit there and comment on other people's sections all the time. You know, we also work with owners of companies and a lot of them might have an engineering background. That's how they got into product development because they saw a need that's why Richard started Ignis, because he realized that there was a need for high quality engineers and there's sort of a gap in the market in terms of encouraging people to come through into engineering. And that's why he sort of started it in the first place. So, again, a lot of the owners have seen something that other people haven't and sort of working with them and engaging with them. And it's the risk factor as well. You know, even if you're a head of engineering, and you really understand the process. You're going to look really silly if you pick a consultancy or a contractor that then takes your product leaves it for six months. We get quite a few customers come back to us after six months where they've tried to do it themselves or they've gone with somebody who's sort of, you know, um, decided that they're, that they're not going to do the project for X, Y, Z reason and they get really stuck. Um, so often it's worth that investment just really sitting down and considering who you're going to use the same way that we all do in marketing when we're choosing who to work with on video and things, but that the stakes are really quite high in, in the world of consultancy, I think. And that, that brings me on to a, a really interesting question. One of the things you've got to do is build credibility and trust and, and establish the fact that Ignis, which is, you know, it, it's effectively an SME, it's not a huge company, but give people the confidence that you have the capabilities to do a good job. I mean, how do you do that as a marketer, establish that credibility? Yes, it was actually, you know, particularly difficult back sort of two years. So when I first started, I was the eighth person to join. So there were very few of us. Now that the 16, it's a bit easier, but the people ask the questions. So you want to show, you know, I quite often show our office because I think it's a bit bigger than people imagine, or at least imagined when there were eight of us. We're not just sort of sat in our, you know, we are actually sat at home quite a lot because we have a great sort of hybrid working relationship, you know, post COVID. But again, yeah, testimonials are huge. I think it's really important to sort of get customer feedback and it's not always that easy. What we found actually is sort of dropping things that we've got a Slack channel where we share wins from customers to where somebody sent an email back explaining how happy they are because nobody likes answering a survey. And we found ways around it. You know, we just done one was a competition for a remarketing tablet. But again, even then, I think it's engaging with people through the process with the kickoff meetings. And when you finalize something to go, look, the surveys are really for you just as much as us. We want a five star review on Google, but we also want you to work with us again. And if you go, oh, that wasn't great. I'm going to go away and talk to somebody else. And they've not told us because they're shy and they don't want to say anything. That doesn't help us or them. My favorite response is the ones that give you five stars, but then go, oh, but there's this little thing that we could improve. And that's so useful. Yeah. And, and so do you, are you running that engagement? Are you talking to the customers and trying to get that feedback from them? It, I think it's very much a team effort here. So I do, I do um, with this customer survey, I offered everybody a phone call, sort of, sort of ring them up. And again, that's great to, from, from my point of view. I think sometimes people open up a bit more when they're not talking to the person who's working on the project. And it's kind of uh, it takes them away from it a little bit. I think that's quite helpful to almost be a go between. And we're, again, so open and honest with our customers. They can talk to any of us. But sometimes it's nice to kind of open up that candid conversation without any other stakes going on. 
but we also have sort of a project manager here we have a sales manager poppy who's just fantastic and a great engineering manager so we all kind of get stuck in with that that feedback I think is is really a team effort of, of doing that the same way that I think sales and marketing is a team effort you can't force anyone to engage on LinkedIn that is not what I recommend in the slightest but if you can give them the option and go it would be great if you shared some of our stuff if you want to you know the bits that you find interesting and I think that's why it's so important to have a solid sort of social media policy if you're going to do sort of employee-led content they need to understand the rules that they can't get excited and post that you know company x that's top secret uh, one of the most frustrating things about working in an <laughs> industry like this is most of the really cool stuff we do, we can't talk about. You know, I can think of 10, 20, 30 things that would blow your mind that I can't I can't say. And it, it is really sad because I want to tell the world. But then if we told the world, nobody would trust us and we'd have no business. So getting that balance right, you know, again, photographs, things that we'd love to take pictures of and we just can't do that. So again as a marketer that can be really frustrating that's interesting i mean you've talked throughout this discussion about a number of different channels from your blog on your website through to social i, I mean how do you prioritize the different channels which ones do you see working for you which ones do you see as being less effective um so we're, we're quite lucky in that in terms of data we use some great programs to see where leads come from and i'm really strict on sort of going in and taking that time to see when something lands in our inbox where it came from because i think then you can see which channels to really approach and it is pay-per-click right for you or you just throwing money down the drain is it the organic stuff i mean everybody would love the organic seo to be the thing that's working I think you also need to look at acquisition models very carefully. So with a lot of the leads that we see, it might come in through a referral channel. Uh, for example, we're, we're a proud sort of Raspberry Pi partner. So it might come in through their website, but then they might go away and then click on LinkedIn. And they look at that for a bit, which is where the kind of social proof comes in and oh, these are real people. Um, and then they go and click on a pay-per-click ad. Well, you could say, well, that's pay-per-click working. Or is it the other stuff? So with social media, I find often it's not that breadwinner. It's not the one that is going to bring you in the leads, but it's a key ingredient. We find sometimes, you know, 25% of the stuff that's coming through to our sort of thank you page. So I think having that conversion metric is really important. If you're starting out in marketing, make sure you've set up a way to, to see that things are what is converting and what isn't, I suppose. And if you haven't got those cool tracking tools that we, we use, use something like Google Analytics to help you set up those conversion goals. You get in what you put out as well. So for example, if you're going for LinkedIn advertising, you need to have deep pockets and you have to accept that you, unless you use that kind of barrier entry, you know, sort of four or five grand a month, you're not likely to see any results back. So some things aren't worth sort of getting into unless you're prepared to put things up up front and go, let's take that gamble and make sure it's working. It's the same with pay-per-click. If you run a campaign and you only sort of put a pound in a day, you will not see what's working. Circling back to what you said earlier, Mike, around, I think, B2B, a lot of these tools with pay-per-click, it's quite easy to run. I say easy, it isn't. I know pay-per-click is hard. But if you're selling shoes, for example, you can use an awful lot of clever keyword tricks when you're working in a niche industry, I can pick out an amazing keyword and it will tell me that the volume is too low to use on pay-per-click. The best thing about organic is it will never tell, you know, you don't get a big screen going, sorry, you can't load this blog up because the, the volume is too low. And that's that's quite useful. That's interesting. And, and I mean, obviously, throughout your career, you've done quite a lot on SEO. But I think, you know, 
quite a few marketers view that as being a very complex thing to do. Do you think that every marketer can actually contribute and do something towards SEO? Or do you think it's something that really you need to bring in specialists? I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. So from a results point of view, if you're really serious about sort of, you know, it always makes me giggle when people talk about being top of Google. Top of Google is very much a term thing. You can be, you know, we're top of Google for several terms, but there's other terms that we're not even on sort of 100, you know, it's a very subjective thing. So I think if you're trying to triple the amount of people coming to your website within a few months, yes, you do need a team of experts on board. SEO is also not an instant thing. So you can't you can't load two pieces of content and go, it's not working. It needs to build up over time. And what we found is often if we've had sort of a busy couple of months and we've gone, okay, we'll pull back, you, you suffer because of it. It needs consistency. What I would say is to anybody in marketing is if you feel that you are lacking in a skill, go and learn it. So when I was looking at jobs just before I joined Ignis, I realized, well, I haven't got any pay-per-click experience. So I went and got a Google qualification, which is really hard to do because some of the questions are based on practical and I don't have the practical elements. So it's, it's quite a high pass rate. So that was really tricky, but I'd say there's some amazing courses on SEO, go out and find them and learn. I think anyone can learn a lot of the basics was SEO, but you have to put that time element in. If you're only prepared to do half an hour a week, if you're an owner of a company and you're trying to run everything yourself, you can't be sales, marketing, uh, whatever services you're doing, custom service. There's so much that plays into it. So for example, when we bring the leads in, they need to be nurtured through the pipeline. I think simple things as well from a customer service point of view, responding quickly, giving people that right attention, I always describe leads a bit like dating. So if you just take someone out for a meal once and then you don't ever talk to them again, I imagine only a few people would bother reaching out to you. You need to reach out to them and you need to talk to them on a consistent basis or they will get bored or they'll forget your name. You know, I quite often go, oh, there was a a great company the other day in my inbox. I can't remember who they were. And I'm too busy to go looking for them as a supplier. So you need to be top of mind without stalking them. I'm very keen to say that, you know, you shouldn't put people off by just (laughs) prodding them constantly. But there's so many touch points now. You've got LinkedIn, you've got traditional methods, people are face to face. Go out there and with brand awareness, people are coming to our shows now. And I love it when people go, "I, I don't know why we know Ignis, but we do. Two years ago, they'd just go, who, 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 who's that? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of osmosis around here of getting your name out in front of the right people. It's really interesting. You've talked a lot about sort of multi-touch in marketing and the fact that you need to hit people with several different pieces of content, potentially over several different channels. So how do you judge whether a campaign's really good or, or whether it's not worked? So again, it comes down to, I'm a bit of a data queen. I actually measure too much probably. But I find the most important thing was the measurement is to make sure you measure every bit of the funnel. So measure the leads, measure what's getting through to becoming a customer. So it's very easy as a marketer to go, great, I've got 70 leads in my inbox, but actually the salesperson is probably thinking, what is this? What's, you know, make sure you're super joined up. It's (laughs) so important. But again, measuring it all the way through and understanding the difference between a kind of what I call a skyscraper blog that's going to bring in a ton of traffic and the stuff that only a few people will read ever. But, you know, 50% of those people will then go on and talk to you. So I think that's that's really important. And do you have any campaigns you've run that you feel have, have really worked well for, you know, either Ignis or your previous companies? 
I've had a few actually that I'm sort of really, really proud of. I find, again, simplicity is key. I think the main thing is making sure that you kind of push them at that first bit to make sure that they, you know, they really engage. Um, I had one around sort of checking your postcode. So it was sort of wireless broadband and people weren't sort of making that first step. So you weren't asking them to buy, you know, not going in for the kill and that sort of things. Um, it wasn't so much a campaign, mm-hmm. but I'm quite proud of some of the interviews I've done. So I, I reached out to Derbyshire Cave Rescue and I did a sort of seven page blog with them on all the things that they're doing. That was that was incredible. I very much enjoyed doing that. I'm sure some of the other campaigns will come to my head in a minute, to be honest. And they sound really cool, actually. You know, the <laughs> Cave Rescue has got to be an interesting story. Well, yeah. Whatever it's about, it, it's got to be interesting. People going and pulling cavers out and saving their lives. It That's was awesome. absolutely incredible. So I'm, I'm interested. I mean, obviously, you're really enjoying a career that clearly you didn't plan for when you were younger. Yeah. Do you have some advice for people who are maybe starting out in uh, marketing or maybe advice for the for the young Hannah um, thinking about whether or not to go into marketing? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what, what I would say is, you know, as I said, you have to have a bit of a thick skin. You need to be prepared for some people will really understand what marketing is and other people won't understand. They won't get it because it's one of those industries that sometimes people think, oh, you do the colouring in and you put things on Facebook, right? So you have to be prepared for that, I think. But what I would say is it's really rewarding. It's moving so fast now. You know, some of the techniques I've learned last two years didn't exist two years before that. It's hard when you've just finished a degree to get excited about learning because you're probably saturated and tired and fine. Give yourself a bit of a break, but then get back into it. When if you're disappointed because you're looking for jobs and you're not getting the interviews, well, look at look at and write a list of the things you can't do and then go and learn how to do them. Look out for what red flags as well. So, for example, if it says something around event marketing, then it probably might mean you have to work on a Saturday and that's fine. But ask that question at the interview. If it's talking about lead generation, that might be a sign to say, look, they really want those high targets are you okay with it being fast-paced environment? Is it actually a telesales role in disguise? So I had some advice a few years ago around digital marketing. There's some amazing digital marketing roles out there, but you know some of them are very sort of sales orientated and you have to be prepared for that. I think a lot of people are specializing now as well. I think I'm a bit of a dying breed of this sort of 360 marketer. So, you know, I think now you need to think a bit harder about what you might want to specialize in do you want to go down the SEO route? Do you want to do pay-per-click? Do you want to do social media? And what are the pros and cons? Go, go and look online and see what the you know the industry experts are complaining about. So, for example, social media will talk about being told to do TikTok and all these different ones. And actually, it takes so much time. They're doing the video strategy. They're doing all this. Are you prepared to do that? Do you really love it? Or do you think, oh, I've, I've got a Facebook account, so I'm, I've, I would enjoy that? You know, think really, really, really hard about it, I think. And if you get into a first role and it's not quite right for you, maybe you're more customer service. Maybe you love talking to people on the phone. Maybe you love event marketing. It's okay to go, maybe I want to sidestep. And there will be ways for you to sidestep. Don't feel that you're then stuck in that role forever, is what I'd say. Uh, it's brilliant advice. I really appreciate it and really appreciate your time on the uh, podcast. Thank you. I, I'm sure people would be interested to to contact you, maybe ask you some more questions. If somebody has something they'd like to ask, what would be the best way to contact you? Um, absolutely fine to connect with me on LinkedIn. I've also got an email address, which I'm sure we can put in the notes here, which is hannah.ingram at ignos.co.uk. Any questions around even my team, myself, my career, any question really, I'm very happy to an- answer anything people want to hear. Thanks so much, Hannah. Really appreciate all the great insights. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing B2B Tech. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast application. If you'd like to know more, please visit our website at napierb2b.com or contact me directly on LinkedIn. Thank you.